You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Nielsen Analytics General Manager and Senior Vice President Larry Gerbrandt goes on the record online. Now, when it comes to podcasts, obviously this is a fairly new uh, medium for us. Uh, uh, this fall, our fir- we're going to have our first panel of uh, 400 iPod owners who will who have agreed, and of course, we always try to get a good demographic base. Uh, They will allow us to collect information from their iPods and their iTunes every time they sync up. uh, We will download, uh, we will extract uh, all the information we can on what they have listened to, what they have uh, uh, downloaded uh, and their uh, their usage behaviors uh, every time they sink in at least once a month. And thank you for joining us for another episode of On the Record Online, the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. If this is your first time listening, uh, this is um, a, a program where we do in-depth one-on-one interviews with journalists from the mainstream media. And we also talk to podcasters, bloggers, and newsmakers, and the subject is how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business as we know it. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation, Um, and we have a service that allows non-technical people to uh, manage web marketing campaigns, online press rooms, podcast centers, email marketing campaigns, uh, and uh, pretty much all the stuff that everyone gets all excited about online, uh, we have a set of tools, um, single platform that allows you to do all that yourself uh, without the aid of a webmaster or without having to cobble together a bunch of disparate tools and services. Um, and we are supported with a service level agreement, and I think we're reasonably reasonably priced. So if you're interested, check us out at www.ipressroom.com. Um, today we have... Uh, uh, the next in a series of podcasts about podcast measurement. And uh, this is this is a really great interview. I think you're going to like it. Um, we're going to talk to Larry Gerbrandt. He's the general manager and senior VP of Nielsen Analytics. Uh, he's responsible for developing uh, their research and analysis and valuation services. Um, and in addition to that, uh, he also does their research on emerging technologies and they do primary consumer-level research, and uh, they have testing centers uh, in Vegas. Um, they are a division of VNU, uh, and other VNU divisions are Nielsen Entertainment, Nielsen Media Research. Uh, also, you know, there's a number of uh, well-known trade publications that are owned by VNU Media, most notably The Hollywood Reporter, Billboard, Ad Week, Shoot, Media Week, um, I think, uh, what's the actor's one? Um, backstage, ma- backstage magazine. So, uh, it's actually located, uh, on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. 
and it's a great building and it's uh, there's a lot of great great writers there and I actually go by there frequently. Um, Larry's focus now is the convergence of content delivery and consumer media technology and the underlying economic models in television, motion picture, cable, satellite, music, home video, video game, and mobile entertainment. Uh, now, prior to that, he was COO of Kagan World Media. They are analysts. He was there for 20 years. Um, this guy knows media. He has been studying media and analyzing media his entire professional career. Um, he's a regular speaker at uh, MIP and MIPCOM and NAB and CES. And so we are very lucky to have him on this program today. Uh, the interview with, uh, with Larry lasts around 40 minutes. It is – I was riveted. I, re- I was riveted through the whole thing. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. And, uh, and we are going to play it for you after this advertisement. Uh, so listen to the ad, please, and then you'll get to hear the interview entirely uncut. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Larry Gerbrandt, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Larry, tell us, if you would, about this uh, report, uh, Economics of Podcasting, uh, that Nielsen Analytics has recently released. Well, this is a 100-plus page report uh, that uh, uh, really attempts to put podcasting into perspective, both as a business and as a social phenomenon. Um, It contains a uh, survey uh, at its core of some 1,776 uh, respondents to a fairly detailed questionnaire uh, about their uh, podcasting habits. Uh, And uh, one of the things we discovered was that about 6% of the population out there would classify themselves as uh, regular podcast listeners or downloaders. Uh, and uh, at least at the time that we did the survey, it skewed male. And maybe the most I- uh, two interesting findings out of it were uh, one that uh, about 38% uh, of those uh, who said they were heavy downloaders uh, reported listening to less radio. And the other headline is that. Uh, more than three-quarters of those who responded said if they heard commercials in the podcast that they were likely to fast-forward through them. So both, uh, so those facts um, were rather important in terms of ultimately trying to understand the economics as well as the prospects of podcasting. Now, when you say uh, put, put podcasting in perspective, um, were you able to put it in perspective against other media? Like where does that can, – can you put that 6% figure in, in perspective against, say, print media or magazines or daily newspapers or television or radio? Well, uh, each of the, the media sectors I think you described are far more – well distributed and far more pervasive than podcasting. 
of course, each of those that you described have been out there in the marketplace for either somewhere between 60 and 300 years, in the case of newspapers. So we are, uh, uh, in comparison to those, uh, podcasting is extremely nascent. Uh, I mean, after all, uh, iTunes began uh, car- listing podcasts, what was it, last September? So it's only about uh, a year uh, in terms of uh, that support. And, of course, iTunes is one of the primary podcatching sites. Certainly not, by no means the only one. But it's uh, it's still an evolving uh, medium, well, and, and that's where and that's where the six percent I think was important is to understand, you know, where we are. I'd say six percent is a is a significant figure given the nascency of the technology. But when you look at, um, say, I don't know, the New York Times, I think their daily circulation is one point three million, um, and how many people are there in this country? Uh, well, uh, we have about 260 million adults. So, I mean, that's, a so, half, that's less than half a, half a percent. So if you look at the individual titles, because, you know, there is ge- geographic exclusivity is an issue with newspapers, right? Because I'm in L.A., sure, I can get some national papers, but I, I can't get the, the Dallas Morning News. So does the aggregate number really count? Is it a valid measurement? I'm not sure that you would really uh, a better comparison, I suppose, might be USA Today. But your um, newspapers, by their nature, tend to be very local and probably are becoming increasingly more so as uh, uh, more and more of us get our national and international news uh, instantly on either websites or our PDAs or our cell phones. So the uh, uh, I'm not sure that's a uh, the the best comparison. Sure. Uh, but um, I, I think uh, a uh, one of the other things we have to keep in mind is that podcasting is is free, whereas most of the other um, uh, the media that you compared it to, you actually generally have to pay something for, and of course. Uh, People prefer free to having to pay for for content. Sure, um, I, I think a more valid comparison uh, is probably uh, to, um, in terms of competing. I was going to say for eyeballs, but in terms of competing for uh, uh, for ears and eyes, it's probably some combination of the web and radio. Uh, that podcasting uh, really goes uh, c- competes with. Now, Larry, on this on this report that you recently issued, tell us a little bit about the methodology behind uh, coming up with that six percent number. Well, uh, Nielsen actually operates uh, a rather extensive uh, uh, testing facility in Las Vegas. We actually have uh, 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 testing sites at the um, MGM Hotel, uh, the Fashion Mall, uh, the Aladdin, and the Venetian. And the uh, we, we not only test television so- shows and TV commercials, we also do uh, a tremendous amount of custom survey work for clients. 
we're able to insert some of our own questions into the work we do uh, on a, for benchmarking purposes, and, and in this case, we chose podcasting. So, one of the reasons we use uh, we like Las Vegas is that we get a national profile in one location because of the, the, the tremendous traffic of people from, from around the country that flow through that city. So we're able to create national panels uh, in one location. And uh, uh, we actually oversampled in this case. Uh, like I said, we did about 1,700, almost 1,800 respondents. Uh, usually you can get an, a, a pretty decent national sample for with about between 1,000 and 1,200. In this case, knowing that uh, podcasting is, a, is still a nascent medium, we wanted to have a large enough base of uh, positive respondents saying, yes, we download regularly, to be able to, to ask them some additional questions and have it uh, be statistically valid. So now walk, walk us through, uh, how, how does it work? Were you there? Are you, you go to the test facilities when these tests are done, I would imagine. Uh, it's not necessary, frankly, um, at least not the way we have them set up. Uh, I, and uh, along with uh, staff, we will write a questionnaire, and then it's actually programmed into um, the computers that are used. Everybody who sits, uh, uh, who, who participates in these surveys um, or looks at screenings, uh, they sit in front of a computer screen, and they will go through and answer a series of questions. And... Uh, uh, those questions are then are loaded up on an intranet. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, an extranet that I'm able to, or any of our clients for that matter, uh, if they're using the system, are able to log in and actually at the end of each day look at the tally of the questions. So it's, uh, it's virtually like being there. So in terms of, like, if you had a client, maybe, then they said, well, this sounds interesting, but I'm concerned that if we, if we, if we trust a, a questionnaire rather than measuring their actual behavior, maybe they won't be as accurate. How do you, how do you make sure that it's accurate? Well, when you're dealing with human beings, there's probably um, no perfect way of making sure it's accurate. Part of it is in how you ask the question. And in this case, uh, there, were, uh, there were a couple of ways that we tried to weed out um, answers from people who might, not, um, who might not have known what they were talking about or may have had podcasting confused with something else. And so we asked a, uh, a series of uh, of yes and no questions or one, two, three, four, five type questions. And then we ask them to uh, answer uh, soft questions such as what's your favorite podcast? Well, if you said you regularly download podcasts but you don't have a favorite podcast or you can't name anything you download, it's likely that you may uh, uh, have answered incorrectly or that the respondent might not know what a podcast is. So we eliminated 
those who we couldn't verify through a series of these screening type questions that they actually were active podcasters. But, but so, if it's so a multiple... you, you, you weed that you weed that through. You weed those out. Who, how, how do you know someone didn't just choose, you know, arbitrarily maybe one, you know, A, B, or C? Uh, you don't. But if you uh, if you have enough of these questions built in, you could probably eliminate uh, the bulk of uh, the respondents who might just uh, either be confused or might just be shining you on. Uh, I mean, for instance. Uh, the first thing you ask is, uh, have you ever heard of a podcast? That was one uh, data point that jumped out. Uh, the other was the vociferousness and the aggressiveness about their feelings regarding commercial messages. And one of the takeaways from the study was that uh, for podcasting to be successful uh, from an advertising standpoint, that a an embedded or a sponsored model probably makes more sense than having uh especially long form commercials uh, uh embedded into the uh, into the podcast and i think that's a um, uh, you know just like with tivo and even regular television once you put a remote control in a media consumer's hands they, uh, you know, we've trained a generation of uh, uh, of viewers and users in in how to uh, skip past advertising messages that are not relevant to us. So, so given that uh, that this was a, a big su- a surprise, a revelation, I should say, from from this study, do you think, uh, mm-hmm. or are there any general statements you can make, or or um, best guesses about whether or not podcasting uh, perhaps has a a more lucrative future uh, as advertiser supported or as advertiser generated. We see a lot of these podcasts. uh, I know Purina is doing a podcast uh, where they talk about pet care. And uh, I think um, a couple of the airlines are doing podcasts about travel destinations. Do you think that, uh, that are there any generalizations you might make about which ones may work and which ones may not work? Uh, I don't think uh, one precludes the other. I think the uh, there is a danger in advertiser-generated podcasts for them to uh, either be too slick or too self-promotional. And uh, historically, uh, uh, viewers have been turned off to that kind of advertising, or at least they're fairly wary of that, so if it's in a way, if it's done, if it, like I said, if it's either too slick or too self-promotional, uh, the, uh, the customer base uh, or the potential target audience gets turned off. Uh, at the same time, there is uh, probably no better advertising than to have an on-air host or sponsor say, "You know what? This is a great product." And here's why. And I'm a user. Um, Paul Harvey has been doing that, I think, for the last 70 years uh, and doing it very successfully. The uh, uh, Ed McMahon on The Tonight Show used to do commercials as part of the show. And uh, he often would say, hey, I love this product. I use it all the time. 
sometimes he'd abuse the product on the air, and those were almost more, uh, they were funnier than the scripts he was handed. But uh, you know, the point I'm making is that there are ways of, uh, of getting around it, and there are ways of, of actually uh, making advertising work even better in this uh, medium. Talk to us, if you would, about the difference in consumer expectations online versus on television. In television, you know, the uh, images are arresting, and it's a hard sell, and they're really doing everything they can to tap dance for your attention, and we accept it. And then you're telling me in podcasts it becomes uh, something that uh, people actually deters your audience. So why is that? Why, why, are the, why, is the, why are the consumer expectations so different uh, on television versus with respect to um, podcasts? Well, I'm not sure they are that different any, anymore. Uh, a podcast is no different than watching television from uh, using your TiVo or, uh, or a DVR. From the consumer experience, it's, it's basically the same thing. I'm sitting there watching exactly the show I want to watch with a remote control, or in the case of a podcast, a mouse in my hand. And I'm a bit, I have the ability to you know, fast forward through something that bores me. I mean, I, I, I have to admit, uh, I've used uh, the DVR um, uh, to uh, the fast forward function, not only to bypass commercials that I wasn't interested in, I've also bypassed content that I wasn't interested in. So uh, it, it's, um, I, I think it's all about the empowered viewer. And frankly, um, it's the great reality that all the, the, the media sectors are facing. Now, if we, if we look uh, once again at this 6% that uh, came out of this study, uh, you know, there are obviously are different two. You probably put podcasts into two different types of groups, uh, or at least for the purpose of this discussion. Let's do that. One group will be repurposed podcasts, where it's a podcast uh, whose primary audience um, uh, you know, consume the product on either broadcast or, or cable, and, uh, and then it was repurposed and distributed at a later date as a podcast. And then there is another set of podcasts that are original podcasts produced strictly for uh, di- distribution via RSS. Do you have any uh, information on how that 6% breaks down? Are more people consuming podcasts uh, which are repurposed content by major media uh, versus uh, original podcasts by uh, consumers or, or, you know, um, I guess uh, self-appointed uh, uh, content uh, experts? I, uh, quite frankly, uh, our sample wasn't large enough to, to, to make a de- definitive conclusion on that. Uh, for that, I would actually suggest going, let's say, to iTunes on any given day and looking at who the top 100 uh, podcasts are. And uh, I've been doing that uh, on a non-scientific basis, but fairly regularly go, going in and check to see who's up there. And uh, one of the more surprising conclusions I've drawn is that a significant number of existing programmers are using podcasting uh, as a promotional tool. Um, a good example is G4 with its, uh, they will put out a regular uh, piece from the man show 
another one is uh, Comedy Central with their Adult Swim programming. I mean, I've actually become a fan of a couple of their shows as a result of having seen them on iTunes. Uh, the, uh, the, the bits they do with the, uh, uh, the, the Star Trek figures, I think, are absolutely hilarious. Now, that's existing content being repurposed for promotional purposes, uh, and it, it's hitting home. Uh, when um, uh, Paramount released, um, I want to say it's Paramount, uh, the Nacho Libre uh, with Jack Black, there were interviews uh, with Jack Black about his experiences on the set, and I think that was among the top 20 most downloaded podcasts. There are also some totally independent uh, creators of content who were up in the top 10 as well. So yeah, just in eyeballing it, it looked, it felt to me like it was about, of the top 100, it was about 50-50 um, uh, uh, existing content uh, purveyors repackaging content in some fashion, and the other half was uh, completely original that you really couldn't find anywhere else. Now, I think it, I think it's fair to say that most people perceive Nielsen as this Goliath that pretty much just works for the studios and and maybe the networks and and you know not 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 an independent producer. But, you know, given that, uh, you know, the significant amount of these podcasts are being uh, created and, and distributed by independent producers, does Nielsen see those producers as a new potential uh, market for consumption of its research? Let me, let me at least try to set some, some of the perception straight. Uh, and I've only been with Nielsen for a year. And Nielsen Analytics is actually a separate division from Nielsen Media Research. But let me try to answer uh, your, your questions. It is true that our largest clients tend to be the studios, the networks, uh, the, the large ad agencies. Having said that, we, uh, what we do is independently collect uh, a very large amount of data from the marketplace. And we do it not only with TV viewing, we do it with box office. Uh, when people uh, buy DVDs in a video store, we collect that scan data. Uh, you know, when they go to Target, we collect that data. We, uh, Nielsen, uh, the, the, the data that becomes the billboard 100 or 200 is Nielsen sound scan. So when somebody buys a CD, now, the biggest consumers of that data, of course, are the major media companies. They can afford to pay for it. But we collect it from a very grassroots level. We do that both with TV viewing, with a large panel out there of, of uh, more than 10,000 homes. And we do it from you know, literally tens of thousands of retail locations and uh, movie theaters. So the the sourcing of the data is really very grassroots and very independent. The customers for that do tend to be the large media companies. But 
uh, Nielsen licenses access to those databases, those companies. It's not unusual for them to come up. They come up with their own conclusions as to what the data means. Our the, the job of the company is to try to collect as much information as possible and as accurately as possible. Now, when it comes to podcasts, obviously this is a fairly new uh, medium for us. Uh, uh, this fall, our first, we're going to have our first panel of uh, 400 iPod owners who will who have agreed, and of course, we always try to get a good demographic base. Uh, they will allow us to collect information from their iPods and their iTunes every time they sync up. Uh, we will download, uh, we will extract a, uh, all the information we can on what they have listened to, what they have uh, uh Downloaded uh, and their uh, their usage behaviors uh, every time they sink in at least once a month. And just to, to follow up on that a little minute, will one of the um, big questions with podcasting is you can measure downloads, but you can't measure actual plays. So, will they use a diary of some kind? How will you collect their their listener behavior? Well, we will actually be able to because we will have access to uh, both what is done with, I, uh, with the iTunes program as well as what is done on the iPod, we'll be able to determine uh, exactly what was listened to and f what was used and for how long. Now, given that uh, this, the sample is 400, and there are, gosh, there are so many podcasts out there, what type of data do you think you're going to – what type of data are you looking to collect about podcasting? Well, podcasting is clearly going to be a subset of all the information that comes out of this. Uh, and the way measurement works is it's probably going to be most accurate for the most popular podcasts. But whatever it is that is done in that group of 400 – and remember, this is an initial test – it, the sample size will increase once we start collecting the data and understanding it. Uh, uh, one of the things that maybe is more important than anything else is it will tell us a lot about the demographics and the psychographics of podcasters, which is, some, which is data that is impossible to get any other way. Now, let's say tomorrow, for some reason, uh, you get offered a job as head of research at a big network or TV or or, um, or a cable company, and you can't resist and you take the job, and now you're on the other side of the table and you're going to decide what research you're going to get. And and your first job is to figure out which podcasts um, to, to, say, buy advertising in. What, would the, what metrics would you want to know about those podcasts to make your purchasing decisions? Well, I think the um, uh, when it comes to po podcasts are are a little bit of a of an interesting animal from my perspective, uh, in that uh, you can tell a lot about the potential audience for that podcast by the subject matter. Uh, podcasts, at least um, in in this early period, have been a lot about 
people's personal passions, their enthusiasts. Uh, before uh, I joined Nielsen, I spent uh, 20 years and eventually was COO of a company called Kagan World Media, one of the leading independent media research firms. Sure, I know it well. Uh, we sold the company to Prime Media in uh, November of 2000, and I stayed with it until they sold the company again to MCG Capital. Prime Media was one of the largest magazine publishers uh, in the world, and a, about half the titles, they owned about 400 titles, about half of those were enthusiast magazines. And the uh, uh, things that Lowrider magazine, um, Civil War reenactment news. Um, that, that's memory. my favorite, actually. So don't, don't uh, mine, fun, okay? mine, mine too. Mine too. <laughs> I mean, uh, believe me, if you're into Civil War reenactments, I've been a subscriber for years. Okay, so you, uh, you know, if you're if you're looking for the most authentic reproduction canteen or leggings or, you know, source for black powder for your recreations, uh, that publication and the advertising in that publication is extremely interesting to you. And the advertisers are somewhat less interested in maybe the total subscriber base as in knowing that's the perfect environment for their subject matter. Uh, we also, Prime Media also owned uh, Shutterbug magazine. Uh, they also owned uh, an audio video publication. Uh, a home, it was actually home theater. And I actually am interested in both photography and uh, home audio, home theater. And those publications, while they may not have handled a circulation the kind of the size of a Time magazine to the advertisers who were trying to reach dedicated amateur photographers and dedicated uh, home theater enthusiasts. The, the fact that they were reaching that target very efficiently was more important to them than mass distribution. And that's really ultimately what advertising is about, is trying to match the most likely customer, the most likely engaged customer with the commercial message. And if you are a reader of an enthusiast publication or the listener of an enthusiast podcast, the commercial messages are very often as interesting to you as the subject matter. And in some cases, especially in the case of let's say a photography magazine, very often you will look at the ads more carefully than the editorial subject matter because that's where you're going to learn about the, you know, the next coolest gadget you've got to add. So, uh, or you want to look at the classified listings in the back to see you know, where I can get the best deal on a, a particular component. So the... You know, that's the, the big lesson I took away from uh, the, the magazine experience, but I think it's very much applicable to the podcasting environment.
Why is that? I mean, you, you, what you're saying, I guess, is that podcasts appeal to a niche audience? No, is it, uh, as I said earlier, that podcasts have grown up based on a lot of people's personal passions and enthusiasms. You know, they talked about the things that mattered to them. I, mean, I think one of the more popular ones that came out was the mommy cast, talking about raising kids. Well, that's, you know, if you are the purveyor of pampers or if you're the purveyor of a high-end specialty stroller, that's a good, you know, that you are likely reaching your target audience very efficiently. So, so you're saying you think that podcasts have the ability to offer advertisers a premium audience? Absolutely. I, um, it, it's premium relative the, to their product. It's the reason that, frankly, that MTV became so successful. If you were trying to reach that particular demographic, well, believe it or not, MTV's ratings were never very large. I mean, the network would do somewhere between a 0.5 and a 1 rating on a 24-hour basis. I mean, that means one-half of 1% to 1% of all the TV households out there. That's tiny. But you were reaching very efficiently the teen and young adult demographic. And if you were Mars Candy... That's a demographic you wanted to reach, and you had no problem making that media. That, you know, that media buy was a no-brainer in terms of deciding to buy MTV. The question was, what are we going to pay for it? I remember, actually, uh, I was working in the Grammy press room one year, and um, CBS had a one-on-one, -on -one and MTV had a one-on-one. -on -one. And MTV was getting everybody. All the big stars wanted to do MTV, and I remember Al Roker looked at me and said, what is this? We've got, you know, our audience dwarfs them 12 to 1, and everybody wants to go there and not here. Why is that phenomenon, why, why does that phenomenon exist? And by the way, CBS is, I think their, their, their average viewer is, last time I think I saw a number was something like 44 years old, whereas MTV, the average viewer is probably 22. Um, it has to do strictly with the um, uh, the, the type of uh, subject matter that is uh, 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 that is offered. A broadcaster, by their very nature, is attempting to reach the broadest audience possible. Uh, they need boxcar numbers, whereas um, you know the cable networks said. What we're going to do is go after narrow cast audience. We want everybody in that particular narrow area, but you know we're we're very focused on serving and engaging a very specific audience out there, and those networks did it very successfully. So, so you're saying to me that if you were the publicist of a winner that night, whoever it might be. And, and your client said to you, I'm only doing one outlet. And the two outlets were CBS and MTV, knowing that CBS is going to run it on the evening news. They're going to run it the next day in the morning. They're going to run it in the morning show. They're going to run it in the, na the evening news. And it's such a bigger audience. And MTV is going to obviously repurpose it as well, but it's a smaller audience. What do you think is the smarter outlet to do? Well, part of it depends on what I can afford to pay for. 
No, this is the, was just PR. Now they've all set up one on ones. You you're the publicist for a winner of the night, oh. and you're going to grant one interview. So you're not going to oh, pay okay. for it. And your choices are CBS or MTV. Which is the smarter choice? Well, again, it depends on what my uh, what my product is. But if it's geared to a young adult demographic, I'm going to choose MTV. So now, uh, final question. I want to talk just for a moment about the fact that TV content delivery is now going through so many other mechanisms besides broadcasting and cable. We've got YouTube. There's DVRs out there. There's the web. How is Nielsen adapting to, to measure this, this multi-channel delivery universe that seems to be evolving? Well, our art initiative is, uh, is basically anytime, anywhere. Uh, that uh, this media is being consumed. So we're developing uh, uh, portable tracking devices uh, that will work with cell phones, that will work with um, uh, iPods, uh, they will work with uh, you know, any other devices that are being created out there. So that wherever media is being consumed, we will track it. I mean, we even have a division that actually now tracks uh, billboards uh, by uh, with a combination of GPS technology, uh, knowing exactly where the billboards are and, and being able to determine traffic patterns by those billboards. We can even measure uh, billboard impressions. So, yeah, is it uh, 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 having said that? I mean, one of the things that, that as a business, you have to, you will measure the things that customers are willing to pay for. And uh, that's sort of simply the reality of the market research business. Uh, it might be nice to know certain things, but if somebody doesn't want to pay for the information, it just is simply not economic to pay for it. And we work very, very closely with networks and advertisers and agencies to come up with, uh, you know, we fully vet the size of the panels and the way the data is collected and uh, you know, the way uh, that is measured. I mean, none of this is done in a vacuum. And we don't wake up. Nielsen doesn't wake up in the morning and say, geez, wouldn't it be nice to do this and go out? And, you know, it's done in conjunction with um, our clients. And the clients are, um, are, are actually very often competitors or at least engaged in a negotiation. A, a, we collect and give information to both the buyer and the seller of advertising. So it has to be a system both will agree on. And sometimes they don't. This last season, we made information called Live Plus. Live Plus uh, uh, 7 uh, is one of the definitions that, that was live uh, primetime shows, plus anything that was watched on a DVR, a TiVo-like device for the following seven days. ABC said, we want the ads, ad ratings to be based on Live Plus 7. 
And the advertiser said, well, that's nice, but we don't think people are actually watching much of the advertising in that plus seven. We want it based on live. So a negotiation took place. But the data was available to both sides. Larry, um, if somebody's interested in getting a hold of this uh, report, uh, what should they do? Uh, if they'll go to www.nielsenmedia.com. Uh, you can find a table of contents, ordering information, and uh, uh, not only this, but all the other Nielsen Analytics reports. So, again, nielsenmedia.com. Larry Gerbrandt is General Manager and Senior Vice President of Nielsen Analytics. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, enjoyed it. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.